0: And tonight I want to talk about uh, Sakaya Ditti, which is translated variously as personality view or identity view. That's how Bhikkhu Bodhi likes to translate it. Um, using a lot of information from the discourses, from the suttas, I kind of got in a, I just got in a mood and I got really sucked into reading lots of different suttas, so I, I hope I don't uh, get too nitpicky about it, but I was having fun with it. Anyway, Sakaya Ditti, personality view, getting caught in that sense of self. Once I went to some teachings of His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And these are some notes I took. He said at one point in his teachings that there are two attitudes at the core of our suffering, like twin forces at the core of our being, These attitudes being grasping at self-existence and the self-cherishing attitude. Basically, you know, the meanest of things. He says, we've entrusted our entire well-being in the self-cherishing attitude. And so we find ourselves caught in a perpetual cycle of suffering due to this erroneous total belief in self-grasping to make us happy. And he said later on, you know, if this really worked, if self-interested thought and activity could make us truly happy, we should all have succeeded by now. (laughs) Because we've certainly (laughs) perfected that quality of activity. So what is this Sakaya Ditti? There's one sutta in Samyutta Nikaya where... Um, It is said that all the 62 uh, speculative views, you know, there's one whole sutta with all the different views and all the ways we get lost and past and future and is that or isn't that. I'm not going to go into all of them. But someone says, what is it that causes these views to come into existence? And the absence of what doesn't let these views come into existence. And so the key is, of course, identity view. When identity view is present, then all of these 62 speculative views can come to be. And when there is no identity view, no personality belief, no Sakaya Ditti, then these views don't come to be. They don't arise. (laughs) So this Sakaya Ditti is definitely a seed of enormous confusion and suffering, and basically after we've been practicing for a while to move away from such high language, we hate it. (laughs) We want it to go away, but not really. (laughs) We'd like the suffering part of it to go away, but other parts of it we really are so uh, familiar with. It just feels so much like me. How could it go away? Okay, back to... Back to the suttas. So what is this Sakaya ditti? And actually, the Buddha describes it very precisely. He actually has very different words and phrases for different aspects of how the sense of self is created in a moment. Sakaya ditti um, being kind of, uh, in some ways, is the grossest form of how we get caught in creating sense of self, but it's also the place to start. So he gives very specific definition, you could say, of what Sakaya Ditti is. Now, experientially, before I read you that definition, we all know very well the experience of being caught, right, in the sense of identification. Both the experience of being caught and also the mystery of it. you know. So when you're caught in some, some particular internal formation, a particular pattern of your mind, an emotional train, some reaction, or maybe just striving in meditation, something that you're caught in. And you're mindful to the extent that you can actually name what's going on. You can say, oh, this is striving. Or this is, you know, my sense of worthlessness. You can note the sensations. You can say the emotions. It's not like you're lost on another planet or completely believing the content. And still, somewhere, you're totally identified. And you sort of know that in the back of your mind, but you just can't. You know, you can't see how. And then it switches, right? Something lets go, and suddenly, there's not identification anymore. And the whole sankara, the whole formation might still be there. Might still be exactly the same, right? But somehow you're free within it. There's just not that sense of suffering from it anymore. And it's a mystery, isn't it? You kind of go, how did that happen? What let go? Can I do that again? <laughs> but that just that sense of something huge shifted, and at the same time, you're still in the same story, but it just isn't me anymore. So we know that, right? I'm not, just, I mean, I'm not just making that up, right? You know, that experience. But what does the Buddha describe Sakaya Ditti is? What is it? How does the presence of Sakaya Ditti serve to create further views, further getting lost in sense of self? How do we practice sakaya ditti? Because we do, often. And what is the path of practice leading to the cessation of self-identification? So I just want to touch on some different suttas, some different things the Buddha has said about each of these. There is one very set definition of Sakaya Ditti. And in the past, I would read it and kind of not dismiss it, but just try and simplify it and think, oh, that's too complicated and boring. But I'm afraid I don't think that at the moment. So you guys are going to get it, the the whole thing. (laughs) This is, at the moment, this is Sariputta speaking. But that's also pretty good. But this is over and over. This is repeated in the suttas. It's not just a one time thing. He says, What is Sakaya Ditti? An uninstructed worldling, and those, you know, someone who's not completely awakened. I can never say that word right. Okay, this is the form. Um, there's, he regards form as self, or he regards self as possessing form. Or he regards form as within-self, or he regards self as within-form. And then a metaphor is given for each of these, because I know the mind just goes, huh? Regarding self as form, regarding form as self, the metaphor is that they're in that moment they're indistinguishable, the way that if you have an oil lamp you can't tell the difference between the flame and its color. They're indistinguishable. So in that moment, we're thinking of form as self. At other times, one might regard self as possessing form, which would mean the mind or the formless aspects of experience um, feels as though it possesses form, the way that a tree has a shadow. So it's as if the mind is possessing form as self. Form as in self means that the formless in that moment we're we're positing or thinking of the formless, which could be is mind experience, as a self within which the form is situated. And I mean, you have all of these experiences sometimes. And this is like the way a scent is in the flower. So it's as if we're thinking in that moment of self as vast mental activity and form is within it. And self as in form means that you're thinking of form and the self is the sense, the formless, the mind, the consciousness is within the form, the way a jewel might be in a basket. Don't try to remember these, but it's just different ways that in a particular moment we're positing the sense of self. So that's in relation to form, and then these same four are in relation to all the other four, the four, other four aggregates: feeling, perception, volitional formations, you know, actions of mind, internal formations, and consciousness. So at any particular time, we might be regarding feeling as self, or perception as self or some volitional internal formation as self, or consciousness as self, and each of those in any of those four ways. So see, it's very subtle, and we might think, well, I know this body isn't me, but there could be more subtle ways that we're relating to the body as being within a sense of self, which is consciousness, for example. So. Our view, Sakaya Ditti is just a view, it's not a steady state. It's arising in relationship to experience frequently. And because it can arise in any of these 20 different ways, we don't always recognize it. We might be really familiar with two or three of those ways and we don't get caught in them anymore. But there's 17 others, you know, (laughs) that we just don't quite see. So then Sariputta goes on. Taking form, just as the example. The person then lives obsessed by the notions, I am form. Form is mine. As he lives obsessed by these notions, that form of his changes and alters. Heck of a nerve, but it does. With the change of form, there arises in him, guess what? Sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair, right? So the same for all of those, the form alters, the feeling alters, the perception, the volitional formations, any of our internal experience and consciousness. So this is the basic definition of Sakaya Ditti. You see, I wanted to go through it all. It's, it's, it's clear and it's not. <laughs> it's very actually very subtle. Now, when Sariputta says, you know, we think of form as me, that form changes and alters. And we get you know, really lost in displeasure, in despair, in sorrow. It's, that's, not, that's not rocket science, to see how we do that, right? That's, am I right? I mean, that's, that's pretty obvious to see. The body changes, where it didn't hurt, suddenly there is pain. Vedana changes where you had a nice pleasant calm breath suddenly the whole sitting gets tight and hard strong sensations are coming and you're getting like needles sticking in you and it's unpleasant it's changed you know our perceptions shift and change sometimes just in deep states of concentration our perceptions of what's going on in our body in the world get really weird it can be scary It certainly is unfamiliar. That change in perception, the change in Vedana, the change in form, gives rise to all kinds of thoughts and conclusions and comparing and more Vedana and more thoughts and more sense of self and enormous suffering. What does it mean about me? Or our perceptions can shift in how we think others here are looking at us or thinking about us, or speaking to us, or just how they look, you know, what's going on with them. Or just Perceptions are unreliable, but they shift, and we get really upset. God knows our internal formations are changing all the time. And from talking to people, and from my own experience, that's often one of the biggest areas where, when they change, we really get lost in obsessive suffering about it and confusion. Me, me, me. Or we resist? Or we blame? And all of that, in some way, we are positing a personality belief, identity belief, around any of these aspects of experience or around our resistance to it or around the conclusion, what does this mean about me? In that, we are practicing the path of self-identification. We're practicing the cultivation of Sakaya Ditti, which isn't to then start blaming, because you can't even claim as yours Sakaya Ditti. It's just another conditioned arising. If we hate when personality view arises, We're practicing the path of cultivating personality view again, right? But if we can just see it as another arising appearance, oh yeah, here's personality view, I'm totally and completely identified with this and I want it to go away. Oh yeah, that's personality view. It feels like this. Then we're not cultivating it in that moment. So the Buddha, now he elaborated in another sutta, a little bit more on what um, Sariputta said, how we create suffering from sakaya Ditti." And he started this sutta by saying, I will teach you agitation through clinging. <laughs> you might think we don't need to be taught agitation <laughs> through clinging. <laughs> I think what he means is to explain to you how that happens. <laughs> and then he follows it with an I will teach you non-agitation through non-clinging. So he begins it with the same set of explanations of what Sakaya Ditti is, you know, uh, an instructed worldling regards self as form and and through that whole thing. And then he says, with the change and alteration of the form, the feeling, the perception, the formations, the consciousness. I like this. It's a little subtler. It's really how it seems to happen in my experience. With the alteration of this sense of experience we're calling self, his consciousness becomes preoccupied with that change. Doesn't it? Even if it's a change for the so called better, uh, it's easy to get preoccupied with it. Ah, oh, now the sitting's really going good. How did I get there? How can I keep it going? What does this mean about my practice? What stage might I be at? We become preoccupied with the change. And then agitation. See, even if it's a change that we like, that preoccupation leads to agitation in the mind, agitation in the energy body. Agitation and a constellation of mental states born of preoccupation with the change of form remain obsessing his mind or her mind, right? And this can be extremely gross where, you know, we really know it and it can be on very subtle levels. But the agitation can be the kind of agitation where you just have to run around in the woods for an hour because you're so, you know, preoccupied with the alteration and the constellation of mental states that have arisen. Or it can be an agitation from uh, a state of quite a tranquility, as Marcia talked about in her last talk, the tranquility in samadhi, but there's a change and some meanness. oh yeah, my consciousness is getting tranquil. What does that mean? And the agitation is on a subtler level, but it's agitation nonetheless, obsessing in the mind, a constellation of mental states. Nonetheless, it's the same pattern. And I think this is interesting. Because his or her mind is obsessed, he is frightened, distressed, and anxious. And through clinging, he becomes more agitated. And this is, this is really, to me, the way it happens. Gross or subtle, never mind. It's the same pattern. It's the same way it works. Because the mind at that moment is obsessed really from grasping to the sense of self in the change, the alteration of form or perception or consciousness or Vedana or internal formations, because the mind is obsessed with that change in any way, you know, and all these thoughts start in the agitation, out of that obsession, fear arises, some form of distress and anxiety, and then there's more clinging and more agitation. And this is the ongoing, you know, arising moment after moment of the experience of Sakaya Ditti, sense of self. Obviously, as he goes on to teach non-agitation through non-clinging, it's simply that when there is no Sakaya Ditti arising in the moment around the alteration of experience, then there's no agitation. There's no clinging to the experience and there's no agitation. So that's non-agitation through non-clinging. The only difference is that subtle arising in the moment of some aspect of experience subtly being held as self and then all the reactions that come from that. And Sometimes it's so obvious, but sometimes it's so subtle, it does sometimes seem like, God, you know, we practice so diligently, and for so many years, and we're paying such close attention, and we've seen so often, seen so often, any of these particular experiences comes and goes isn't self. I mean, we know that in some way, but then we don't, do we? I mean, if we really knew it, right, we'd be arhats. Not to get frustrated or discouraged, because that is merely, you know, obsessing, <laughs> identifying with some internal formation and getting agitated and clinging. But to uh, have a healthy respect is is what I think—a healthy respect for really how deeply how well we have practiced in at least this lifetime, Sakaya Ditti. We've really practiced it many, many mind moments to the point that it's so familiar so often that we we don't even notice it, right? That's why we have to really sharpen our mindfulness, our continuity, our samadhi, to be able to, see more clearly to see through it. So what does it mean? i move away from the suttas for a moment. In the practically, in our experience, just want to share something I was noticing And I think it was the last retreat I sat, I sat here for the month of April. Really exp- exploring in experience the difference between being caught and identified in particular train of internal formation of um, Sankara really, and when the Sakaya ditti, when that sense of of clinging to identifying with any aspect of experience is gone. Really, experientially, what does that mean to us? And as I said, I know you all know it. just to look carefully at what is it that's the hook for me, and it might be different for all of us at different times. What is the place where the sense of self is hooking on that's keeping me in this experience? And even when we know this happens, just before I just before I came up, I had the, I was just closing the Samyutta Nikaya, and there was a, a sutta there that just popped out at me of some of a monk who was very sick and had been practicing years, long time. And he was really upset. He went to the Buddha because he was really sick. And he said, basically, you could hear any of us saying it, I'm used to practicing and having this real depth of samadhi and abiding in tranquility. And I always could get there. And now I can't do it. Now I can't get my samadhi, you know, what happened, basically. I mean, it was in a slightly different language, but that was basically. And you can just hear the Buddha, he's kind of like, haven't I told you things change? You know? It really sounded like that. Let me see. Have I ever said anything to you about? It? Mental states are impermanent, you know. Feeling is impermanent, conditions are impermanent, and he runs through the whole thing. And he, he didn't kind of say, Don't worry, you'll get your samadhi back, it's okay. <laughs> he just said, Wake up. Everything's changing. <laughs> Let it go. Okay, this is my inflection a little bit, but that was basically what he said. <laughs> and we all know that, don't we? <laughs> so what I was exploring, I mean, not consciously, but I just really started noticing it this spring when I was sitting. Um, at times, you know, be pretty clear going along wasn't a lot of emotional stuff. But I I noticed, I remember, it was, I think, early in the morning. I'd get up, and when I first get up early, I'd go down and get a cup of tea, and then I'd start practicing like 2.30 or 3 or something. And a good friend of mine, uh, who was also sitting, would usually be down there walking. And so I've noticed for myself when I first get up, before I've just had a moment to settle in, it's like my mind is not quite aware and I'm more prey to identification with whatever particular patterns I have. They just kind of creep in for a moment. So between my room upstairs and walking down to the tea, even though I was noticing, it's that kind of space where you're noticing what's happening, but the, that kind of grip of Sakaya Ditti is coming along with what's happening. And so I would notice that sense of comparing. I wonder if This is from way back. This is from like my first years of practice. I'm going, I can't believe this is still here. I was thinking also, like, I wonder if I got up before her today. (laughs) You know, like who cares? (laughs) But every morning I say, I wonder if I'm gonna get down there before her or is she already walking? And I would have to watch my mind go through this as I'm going down the stairs. And, you know, some days it was just laughing, but every now and then it would really grip me. And I'd notice the comparing and the sense of oh there she is she's a better yogi than me and on and 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 I'd watch this whole thing going, and it it's that point where you're really as if you're standing on the side going ah, I don't believe this is still running, but there's some little hook you know it's not completely not identified, and so I was looking one morning I was just really exploring it, and I saw oh. The hook isn't so much what I thought it was. We think, well, I really want to be free from suffering, which at that moment translates into I want to be free from this really stupid pattern, and so I want to see through it so it can go away. But I just popped in my mind, oh, the hook actually was am I willing to be without self-referencing? And that the hook into the story, and I've been seeing it more and more and more into, not always, it's not always the hook, but the times when I really... I'm seeing what's happening quite clearly. I can label the whole thing. Mm -hmm. I'm not 100% buying in, but there's some hook. It's not about, for me at that point, believing the story at all or having to fix it or having to say, no, it really doesn't matter if she's there before you. It doesn't mean you're a worthless yogi. You know how you try and pretend I'm really above all of this. I saw the hook was, oh, to be completely without self-referencing. So this stuff comes, so what? The referencing back to me was actually the hook. Even though it was a suffering story, there's still a familiar sense of me about it. And that was actually the, the, the Sakaya Ditti, the sense of identification. Just a subtle, very subtle feeling of me who needs to see through this really stupid story you know, or me. It's hard. I don't know if I can explain it any better. But I'm just saying explore in yourself because it's it's not just the habit of mind, the times when you can really see through it, but there's a subtle sense of trying to understand it, trying to see how it comes to be in the moment. Why is this pattern arising? It's arising out of this and this and this and that. But there's a subtle sense of me behind it that if I just turn around and look at that, and there's just pure awareness in that moment. You just notice thought arising, sensation arising, feeling arising, mood arising, and no referring back to me at all. There's no me in that moment who's caught in this pattern, or not caught in this pattern, or walking down the stairs, or anything. It's just awareness receiving. Sensations, Vedana, thoughts, without any constellation of me in it. It's all just empty space. And in that feeling would suddenly come up the subtle sense of, I don't know if I want to be without self referencing. Even if it's a slightly suffering story, that sense of me is so familiar, like. A comfortable old coat that, you know, you just want to slip in even though it's hot and you really don't need it. And it's just dragging you down and making you sweat. (laughs) But still, you know, like that kid in the Peanuts cartoon who used to have to drag around his blanket all the time because it was comfortable. Anyway, I don't know if I'm making any sense at all, but explore that. When there's the immediacy of wakeful presence, just noticing form arising, feeling arising, sensation arising, mood arising, thoughts arising, just arising without referring back to anything, there's no problem. There's no agitation. There's nothing one has to do to change that formation, to get rid of it. It really doesn't matter. If thoughts are arising, I wonder if I got up ahead of her or she got up ahead of me or why is this happening. It doesn't matter. Those thoughts are arising in empty space. Awareness is just receiving thoughts and there's nothing to do with them. It's not a problem. Nothing needs to be fixed. One doesn't have to suddenly, I've got to move into awareness. I better do metta. I better, you know. There's just no sense of sakaya ditti no sense of self, and hence no problem. You know, that way Ajahn Sumedho talks about sakaya Ditti, the difference between my sadness and, oh, sadness is like this, you know. Me walking down the stairs, knowing, oh, comparing, being a bad yogi, that's, that's my pattern, or, oh, comparing feels like this just what it is. It doesn't matter if it's comparing or it's incredible bliss. It really doesn't make any difference. It's just like this. And then for me that just to notice that more and more I could see the hook into the Sakaya Ditti wasn't the suffering nature or whatever of the pattern but am I really willing in that moment to be without self-referencing altogether? And just a word for those of you practicing metta, in a different way, it brings us to the same place, the same experience. You may not be turning into oh, a rising sensation, a rising thought, a rising vedna, because it's just you know getting absorbed into the metta feeling, absorbed into the phrases and the image. But in that, as the absorption and the metta grows, also stops being any sense of self-referencing. It stops being me having meta for me or you or anyone. There's just metta. There's not this sense of me and other and in that all-inclusive space it doesn't feel exactly the same as emptiness but it works the same way in which there stops being a sense of Sakaya Ditti. No more sense of self-referencing. is just the meta, and that's all. Notice, in those times, how freeing it is. Just, oh, it's just like this. And how, and I'm sure you've noticed this, how easily, how tricky, especially with internal formations like this, Our mind or uh, our awareness, whatever you want to say, gets subtly seduced back into identifying in some way with the particular, especially when it's a a repetitive pattern, internal formation, a repetitive, um, yeah, pattern or personality pattern that you get caught up and identified with. So that ability to just go, oh, sadness is like this. Worthlessness is like this. Comparing is like this. It might really be just empty space like that for a moment, just pure awareness receiving sensations. And then suddenly, it's very me again. And again, I noticed, I'm sure there are many more, but I noticed a few ways that the attention would get tricked back into identifying again. I'll just share my ways. I'm sure you've got your own. One, of course, is by if it's a difficult or unpleasant mental formation, comparing, or fear, or worthlessness, or blame, or jealousy, or you name it. Of course, we get tricked back into personality view about it, relating to it, out of aversion, out of wanting it to go away out of thinking we need to fix it. Another way we get tricked in is out of fascination with it, which is what was happening to me walking down the stairs that morning, trying to, and it can really seem like we're, we're being dharmic about it, trying to figure out how is this arising in the moment, you know? What arising experience is giving rise to this comparing, you know? And we we're sort of, being dharmic, but there's a way we're really clinging to the fascination of wanting to understand it so I can understand how I, great as I am, keep getting tricked back into believing, comparing, you know. How does it rise? How does it go? But there's an identification in that moment, a sakaya ditti around the formation, grasping of wanting to understand. And of course the obvious, getting caught up over and over in any particular thought form or aspect of the story, you know. So I'm walking down the stairs and just when I think I've got it all figured out and I'm not really identified, but this is thinking about it, you know, trying not to identify and you think, yes, it's just comparing arising due to my old patterns from when I was a child and this. And you think you've got it all nicely manipulated. And some new thought comes up, oh, but it's because it's that particular friend, and that really triggers me. Because yeah, you know, and then you're really back in it again, me, 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 you know. When can you just let the pattern be there, no me at all? It's very tricky. It's very tricky. So exploring where we get caught and how the mind gets tricked back into relating to any aspect of experience as Sukhaya Ditti. Those moments when it just... there's just the pattern, just the formation, the sensations, the thoughts, the contact, arising and passing, and there's no holding it together in our consciousness as a sense of me. Just awareness receiving experience. That's really anatta, right? That's a moment of perceiving anatta. And I just want to say that while in the moment that anatta is really the falling away of the sense of me, of any self-referencing, anatta is not, it's liberation from a false sense of self, and it's really a moment of freedom, but anatta is not a path of annihilation, right? It's not that we are looking to experience anatta out of hatred, self-hatred, or aversion to our experience. Let me please just see the emptiness of this because I really hate what's happening, you know? And as if we're looking to, let it just be, you know, experience being received in awareness, you know, because I've got to get out of this you know, and sometimes I've got to get out of this, transfer and I've got to get out of this whole life. I've got to get out of this whole, you know, body-mind experience in a negative way, in a way that's actually more identification. That's a kaya ditti too, clinging to non-being. But when there's that just seeing, really being with all the arising experience without referring any aspect of it, making Sakaya Ditti out of any of it, it really in that moment is the dissolving of the whole issue. The whole issue just goes away and nothing needs to change. You know, you don't have to get out of comparing. Just whether it's a problem or not falls away. But not if we're looking for anatta out of a sense of self-hatred, or aversion to any experience that's just more sakayaditti that's just you know having our self in reference to reacting to a particular experience with sense of self so just just exploring just exploring how the sense of Sakaya Ditti, of relating to any aspect of experience as this is mine, or this this experience is within me, or I am within that experience, notice how that arises. Notice the liberation from that, the freedom from that. Both are happening all the time. Just as I said, we practice, you know, we're practicing Sakaya Ditti a lot. I don't want to leave it on that kind of downbeat. We also here are cultivating the path of practicing, you know, freedom from identity view. Freedom from creating sense of self. So back to the suttas. There's one sutta where someone asked the Buddha, how should one know... How should one see for identity view to be abandoned? And this is really one very succinct uh, description of our path of practice. So his answer of bhikkhu, when one knows and sees the I as impermanent, the identity view is abandoned in that moment. But he goes on again. When one knows and sees forms, so there's the I and there's forms, what the I sees, right? So when one then knows and sees forms as impermanent, in that moment, identity view is abandoned. And then, I consciousness. The I forms, I consciousness, when knowing turns to that. When one sees, I consciousness is impermanent identity view is abandoned. When those all come together, right? There's your eye, there's a form, there's knowing, there's consciousness in that moment. That moment of actual seeing is called contact, right? Sense contact. So he says then when one knows and sees eye contact as impermanent, identity view is abandoned. And when one knows and sees whatever feeling, whatever vedana, arises with eye contact as the condition, so there's the seeing, it's impermanent, you don't notice that, but it's really pleasant, and you notice that that pleasantness is impermanent, then identity view is abandoned. And he goes, of course, through all the six sense doors, ear, sounds, your consciousness, your contact, the actual hearing, whatever feeling arises due to ear contact, hearing contact. Smell, taste, body, body and tactile phenomena, body consciousness, the contact when you're actually aware of feeling and whatever feeling arises, and the mind, the mind as a sense door, whatever mental phenomena arise. Subtle mental phenomena are really gross. Thoughts, feelings, emotions, or subtle perceptions. Whatever mental phenomena arise. The, The consciousness, the mental consciousness, and mind contact, which I think is really interesting, and whatever feeling arises. I go through all those because I think this points to a very subtle and very precise way that we can bring mindfulness into our practice here it gives us a lot of choices whatever in a moment is particularly um, obvious in our experience you know so say there's a loud sound it might not be that you've noticed the ear first right and think oh yes the ear is impermanent you may not have even noticed the consciousness of hearing but you could be aware of contact, right at that point of hearing, contact. And notice that that contact is impermanent, it's gone already. Maybe you don't notice the contact, but you notice, oh, that's an unpleasant sound, unpleasant. Don't want it. It's gone already. Unpleasant is impermanent. With all the five physical senses, and personally, I think, to really bring this sense of noticing the impermanence in at the mind door, Especially I was noticing just walking. I was taking a walk today and just paying attention to that moment of contact, the mind door and mental phenomena and the point of contact. So say, you know, a little mood arises. No big deal. Can I just notice that point of contact when there's knowing of sadness, that first moment of really connecting? Oh, contact. And as soon as you notice, it's impermanent. As soon as you notice that contact, it's already changed. It doesn't mean the mood is gone, but it it shifts slightly, and there's another contact. Or the Vedana that comes from it. You notice, oh, that's slightly unpleasant. And as soon as you're noticing unpleasant, it shifted, and it became neutral in that moment. You notice neutral, it shifts, and went back to unpleasant. This, of course, takes some mindfulness. It takes some continuity of mindfulness leading into samadhi, right? It's hard to see and notice on this level, especially of contact and vedana and impermanence, when, you know, we're so busy in daily life and so much stuff is coming in. You know, if I went, I have to go talk at, at a CIMC in a couple of weeks in Cambridge, you know, where people just come in from their daily life. And if I start talking about, notice the moment of mental contact and how it's impermanent. You know, and and people are running around crazy busy. What are you talking about? I'm lucky if I can notice. I'm furious. Never mind, oh, the moment of mental contact, the moment of Vedana. But here we are able to really um, cultivate the mind to use our uh, sati, our mindfulness, and the continuity of mindfulness to begin to see through our, what I talked about a, well, a couple months ago, I guess, our inverted perceptions, to begin to see more clearly, right? When we really bring in our mindfulness to the point of the sense door, to the point of the sense contact, or the vedana, not to change it, but just to notice its impermanence. This really Begins to and deeply undercuts the whole habit of Sakaya Ditti. Because when we're really cellularly experiencing the impermanence on this quick changing level, you know, you really, you really just can't make too much of anything. You know, even the strongest, most um, habitual story about yourself or moods that you have or feeling in your body, when you are noticing on that point of contact, tactile sensation and contact with awareness changing, the sense that it's me, this form is mine, this contact is mine. You know, by the time you've even gotten that formed, it's already changed. And it just, it all just starts to becomes so much more ephemeral, so much less solid, so much more free. And as the, as the Buddha said, though, you know, we have a tendency not to notice the impermanence of things, right? We, we know it intellectually, but, you know, he talks about the inverted, the perversions of perception, where we tend to perceive what is impermanent and changing as permanent, right? What is, what is unsatisfactory, what is unreliable as happiness is satisfactory? What is not-self we perceive as self? And on the level of anicca, which impermanence, which is really what he keeps talking about in terms of seeing through Sakaya Ditti, what I just read, To really cellularly see through our habit of assuming permanence really does take continuity of mindfulness. I feel personally that it's lack of continuity of mindfulness is what hides impermanence, you know. So we all know everything's changing. But cellularly, cellularly, we don't necessarily quite get it. Again, this is something the Dalai Lama said. It. I think it was at that same teaching. He said, you know, we think we, we understand long-term Anicca. You know, on some level, we all really know, sort of, we sort of know that we're going to die. We know that people are born. We know that they get sick and they die. They. <laughs> when we get sick, well, we have to go through some Dharma work to say, oh, you're right, I know that really happens. But to me, now? Yeah. But we all know that happens. But he says the tendency is to think, and even with moods or even with something quicker, we think, well, this sensation, unpleasant sensation, I know it's impermanent. It's going to go away. When? You know? but we tend to think it arises, it persists for a while, and then it goes away. It changes. That is inaccurate. That's assuming permanence. Where? And that persists for a while. Nothing persists for a while, even that much. Nothing. He said, you know, impermanence means constant flux. And when we're thinking, this is arising, my life is persisting for a while, and then it's going away. And we do that, right? And when we turn in here and look, What is persisting for a while? What has persisted just exactly the same for any two mind moments in a row, if we're really looking? And that's one of the, uh, when I said, you know, distortions of perception or perceptions that can happen in deep practice, that's one of them that can really flip us out for a while. There's nowhere to take a stand. There's nothing staying the same, and I need something you know, back to even if it's a suffering sense of me, at least, you know, is familiar. I can land there. When we really have a continuity of mindfulness, moment after moment after moment, you really start to see, and don't believe me, you can't, it really has to be from our own experience, but there isn't anything persisting. And at first, second and third, We might hate that. (laughs) No, I need something. But once that sense of me wanting something, that's also not persisting, goes away. It's just how it is. No problem. But this is why the continuity of sati is so important. Because otherwise, we see this pain We pay attention to something else. We space out for a while. We go off into a daydream. And then we come back and, oh, there's the pain. And it's been the same. So we're assuming permanence. We don't notice that 10 million things happened in there. And while you were lost in the daydream, you can't actually prove that that pain was there. You weren't aware of it. You know, like that if the tree falls in the forest and nobody's there, do you hear it? Don't think about that. But in your experience, the experience was not pain. The experience was you were off in Sumatra somewhere, you know, hunting orangutans. And then you come back and, oh, this pain, has been the same all day. You know, it changed in the night. Oh, I see, there really is change. The pain went away. That's why when we talk about continuity of mindfulness, it doesn't mean you don't space out, but it's that willingness to just notice this moment, then this moment, then this moment. That's why noting, as a tool is so immensely useful. Because when we're just noting, very quietly labeling, whether it's rising and falling, or vibrating, thinking, unpleasant, contact, vibrating, tingling, color, you see that it's something different every moment. And then you realize you didn't note for a while. And you come back and start noting again. It brings you in much more moment to moment where it's possible to be that aware without noting, for sure. But it's also easy to be saying, oh, yes, I'm really aware of this pain. I'm aware of the body. I'm aware of, you know, awareness. And I'm receiving sensations in awareness, like Carol said. And I'm just feeling the pain. and and It's all the same. You know, it's a crock. It's pleasant, maybe. You know, (laughs) we're half experiencing stuff and half making it up. Which is why we don't know what's going on so often. When we're making it up, we're assuming often in that assuming permanence or some subtle sense of self. We're assuming something and we don't even know what. We're just noticing, noting or not, but just connecting your awareness with each moment, experience, whatever it is. That gives the space. You might say, what do you mean space? Noting every moment there's no space. That's why I hate it and I don't want to do it but it actually gives the space for us to notice what's actually happening rather than what we subtly think might be happening or want to be happening or how we analyze what's happening or think you know it could be we don't have a clue if we could just notice the arising experience and this moment after moment it actually gives huge space because when that happens and when there's a sense of Sakaya Ditti coming, we notice it. It's really obvious, that sense of contraction, that sense of self. And through the steadiness of mindfulness is how samadhi, how concentration develops. And that, that stillness, that depth of observing power, that really supports and strengthens and allows the observing power to get more and more subtle to actually notice the moments of mind contact, you know, and how that changes as soon as you notice it. That's why we're so fortunate, really, to have the opportunity to practice like this. It doesn't mean anyone's practice should look in any particular way, but we just have the opportunity to really cultivate the stillness and the observing power to just begin to notice the changing nature of all our sense experience, the sense contact, the sense consciousness, and the vedana that goes along with it. Well, I have all these other great stories. Well, okay, two more. Sakaya ditti, in the form of the definition that I gave you, those 20 ways, is said in the Theravada tradition, is said to uh, be dissipated at the first stage of enlightenment, personality view. And of course the question then arises, (laughs) arises, how come it seems to keep going? You know, does it seem to keep going? That seems like if that's all gone, one would be complete arhat. And I found, there's a a sutra I've known about for years that's really fascinating because even though those 20 ways of positing self or thinking some aspect of the aggregates is me, that can be seen through and still it's so subtle, the tendency, the residual tendency to conceit to the sense of comparing with others. That doesn't go to ones in our heart. The tendency, the subtle sense to grasp at any aspect of experience. The underlying tendency just to have the feeling of I am. These are so subtle and so deeply rooted that even when you're seeing clearly the impermanence of all these things we mentioned, there can still arise some subtle sense of I am that you can't quite pin down. So if that's happening to you, you know, and you think, but I'm past that by now, you know, don't lose heart. Now so there's this sutta where one monk, Kemaka is his name, and some other monks, he's very sick. I don't know why a lot of these monks were sick and old. And other monks came to him, and they were asking him, what's your experience? And he said, you know, I do not... Can, I do not grasp at any of the aggregates as me or mine. I know I'm not form. I know I'm not perception. I know I'm not consciousness. I know I'm not, you know, he goes through all of them. And so then they go back, and go, oh, he's an Arhat. He's an Arhat. And they come back to him. And he said, no, I'm not. I'm not. He said, I still have, and this is very interesting. He said, even though... I do not speak of feeling as I am or perception as I am. I don't grasp any of these as I am. There still lingers in me. There still is um, a residual feeling of I am that arises. The notion I am has not vanished in my experience. The feeling, the tendency, the notion I am does arise as if this I am, even though I don't say, I am perception, I am form. There's still the habit of this feeling of I am arising. And he says, as an example, he says, suppose there is the scent of a blue, red, or white lotus. Would one be speaking correctly if one would say, the scent of the flower belongs to the petals, or the scent only belongs to the stalk, or it belongs only to the pistils? And the monks say, no. You'd have to say the scent is part of the whole flower. And he said, it's exactly like that. I don't speak of form as I am, but I can't say I am is completely separate from form. I don't speak of perceptions or feeling as I am, but somehow the notion of I am, the underlying tendency to conceit, still tends to arise somehow within this field of mental physical experience and he couldn't really be more clear than that. I found that kind of heartening, right? Because it's like explains why I think at times we've all practiced a lot and we've really seen deeply the impermanence of these things and there's times when you really know I'm not identifying with this body. I'm not identifying with this emotion. I don't think I'm this perception. You really know it, but there's that whiff of I-ness, you know, hanging around. And you really can't put your finger on it, but you can really say, okay, i is here. It feels like this. And the practice isn't any different. You know, it's not that we have to do something different. And again, Kamaka says, you just keep on dwelling, contemplating the rise and fall of the five aggregates subject to clinging. Just keep on noticing the impermanence of the things I said, the five, the six senses, the sense doors, the sense objects, and contact and feeling. Just keep noticing. That's all. With a sadha, with a trust, with a faith, that as our perception gets clearer and clearer, we will no longer be sucked back, deluded back, into believing Sakaya Ditti. And that whiff, you know, that indefinable whiff of self that can drag us back into so much confusion and suffering will finally dissipate completely. And then I just want to close with this one sutta about how fortunate we are to be able to have these teachings and this practice, to have this time. This is a sutta to Anattapindaka. Anattapindaka was perhaps the biggest lay supporter, the most generous lay supporter of the Buddha in his lifetime. Totally devoted. A layman married with family, but he was said to be first stage of awakening. Incredibly generous. And in this sutta, he's very sick and basically dying. And he asks for Sariputta and Ananda to come to him and give him teachings. They come and ask how he's doing, and he's in incredible pain, you know, in his body, and his head. And so Sariputta starts teaching him. And it's a long teaching, I won't give you all of it, that's very much in line of what we've been talking about tonight. He starts out by saying, you know, you should train yourself. I will not cling to the ear. I will not cling to the nose. I will not cling to the eye. I will not cling to the mind. It goes through all the sense doors. I will not cling to forms. I will not cling to eye consciousness. I will not cling to eye contact. Going through all these same things we just talked about. I will not cling to material form, to feeling, to all the aggregates. The kind of teachings that I was just sharing that we all can explore every day in our practice. And he ends it, Sariputta ends it with, I will not cling to what is seen, to what is heard, to what is sensed. To what is cognized, to what is encountered, I will not cling to what is sought after. I will not cling to what is examined by the mind, and my consciousness will not be dependent on that. And at this point, Anattapindika started weeping, just weeping. And Sariputta, Noananda, actually said, "What's the matter? Are you sinking? Are you dying?" And he says, "No." He said, I have been waiting on the teacher and the bhikkhus for so long, for my whole life, and never have I heard such a teaching on the Dhamma as this, with such depth. It's so profound. And Sariputta says, yes, we we don't give such deep talk on Dhamma to lay people. You know, it's in a way implying it's too hard for them to see. You know, we give it to those who have gone forth." And Anattapinaka says, well, please, let such talk on Dhamma be given to lay people. There are those who can see, those who can understand. It's so profound and beautiful. And then they leave and he died. And, of course, was reborn as a deva and came and sang praises to Sariputta, to the Buddha. I get chills, though, when I think of that, you know, at his weeping, at the power of that teaching, saying, please, let it be shared with lay people. And now, yes, almost all of us here are lay people and we have the opportunity, not just to hear the teachings, but to put them into practice. You know, at the eye door, the ear door, the nose door, the mind door, the body door, the mouth door. See the impermanence. See where we're caught. See Sakaya Ditti arise and pass without needing to change it, without needing to do anything. And just appreciate, appreciating our great good fortune in this life. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. May the energies of our practice be shared with all beings in all realms, in all conditions. May our practice be the cause for their happiness and liberation from suffering.